You're listening to Sobriety with Ari Eastman. Hey, that's me. Well, good morning and happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for tuning in uh, to Sobriety, a podcast where we discuss you know, what don't we discuss? Am I right? No. Uh, welcome to a podcast where I talk about alcohol and recovery and a lot of just um, verbal diarrhea, essentially, is what happens. This is this is the, this podcast is the culmination of me being raised an only child. You know, I am curious. I wonder how many only children start podcasts. Has to be kind of a high percentage, right? Because we're just so used to having, you know, attention on us. And assuming people care what we think as the only child, it's got to be, there's got to be, there's got to be some sort of correlation between only children and podcasts. If anyone has that information, please let me know. I'm recording this on Sunday and in a few hours, the Oscars are happening. You know, for all the tragedies COVID took from us, perhaps the worst is that it killed my interest in award shows. I'm just kidding. That was a, that was a horrific joke. Uh, but it is true. I feel like I used to be so, so invested in award shows, especially the Oscars. Like, that was the pinnacle of all of it. And now I just don't. I don't care. I don't care at all. I, I'm like, I'd rather watch an episode of Love Island. But I will tune in. Growing up, we would have Oscar parties, you know, we would print out the ballots, we'd all make our predictions. Sometimes I would just like literally put on a ball gown just to sit in my living room. Uh, and I think I, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, my 21st birthday happened to fall on the same night of the Oscars while I was in film school. So obviously that was a big to do. That was a big deal. But this year, I couldn't even tell you four nominees how the mighty have fallen. I will still tune in because what else is there to do? So recently I saw a post by Holly Whitaker at Holly on Instagram that I found super interesting and you know it definitely got the old wheels spinning in my head. Holly is someone I really admire. She wrote Quit Like a Woman and is someone to me in the sober space that really represents recovery in a way that is intersectional and understanding and not quite as binary or black and white as traditional AA tends to be or other sort of, you know, traditional treatments that we see. When I when I wanted to get sober, there were a lot of things about AA um, and these kind of, you know, more classic treatment ideologies or paths that just didn't feel quite right to me personally. Holly always wrote about her recovery and how recovery can happen in a way that felt accessible to me. And like, I didn't have to do it in 12 steps. I didn't have to admit I was powerless against alcohol. I didn't have to say I was giving it up to a higher power or whatever the terminology is. And so much of her work really empowered me to figure out what was going to work for me and how could I get healthy for me and my way. And that that didn't have to strictly fit into anything. So Holly shared an article. The headline is, Jim Bean Distiller puts $1 billion behind sustainability, diversity, and responsible drinking plans. Now, at first glance, hey, those things all sound great. We want sustainability. We want diversity. I sure as hell would like to be able to responsibly drink, but you know what? I can't. 
So part of this $1 billion is being allocated for $500 million globally to educate consumers on responsible drinking. Holly continues to write, 80% of alcohol sales comes from 20% of customers who are the heaviest users. The industry knows this, counts on this. They want us to drink above recommended limits because it is the only way they can grow. They do not want us to drink moderately. They want us to be confused. Responsible drinking is such a confusing term in in general. I mean, responsible drinking, it puts the blame on you. You're like, oh, if only you had consumed this addictive drug in a responsible way, then, well, hey, don't shoot the messenger. We told you to do it responsibly, so that's on you, baby. Uh, And in general, we have a very long way to go with drug education. And to, to me, you know, I'm all about harm reduction, and I think that includes presenting things factually. You know, you think about, like, the D.A.R.E. scare tactics, right? I mean, I don't know if D.A.R.E. is even a program anymore, but I went through it when I was a kid, and it's so fucked up because there's, there, I mean, there's so much to unpack in general because that stuff was, like, birthed out of the war on drugs, and, you know, there, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. And that's a conversation I'm looking forward to having with someone who's far more educated and intelligent than I am. You know, because alcohol has been legal in the United States since the ratification of the 21st Amendment in 1933, it's not quite demonized the way other substances are, despite the amount of death and destruction it causes. Let me make this very clear. I also don't think the answer is demonization of alcohol. But there is a very clear difference, at least for me, growing up, how illegal drugs were talked about versus alcohol. Sure, as a kid, you were told, don't drink, you know, never drink and drive. But as children, practically every adult you see drinks, you see it on TV, you see it on commercials, you see it at restaurants. It's kind of like sex. You tell kids not to do it, but they know adults do it. And guess what? Teens are going to have sex. Uh, They're going to drink alcohol. So scare tactics that only tell part of the story are never the right approach, and they've been proven ineffective. I actually never snuck out in high school or really partied uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I was just crippled with anxiety. But the other was because I had such a trustworthy and honest relationship with both of my parents. You know, they actually talked to me about stuff. And when I started having sex in high school... You know, I told my mom right away so I could get on birth control. There was no hiding it. Even though I'm sure she would have preferred that I wasn't doing that, she didn't make me feel like a bad person. I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel like I couldn't talk to her. So with sex education, with drug education, alcohol education, I just wish we would be more fact-based and remove the fear, remove the stigmas, remove the judgment. When you talk to people, especially kids, like they are intelligent and can process information instead of dumbing it down and just declaring, don't have sex, don't drink, don't do drugs, they're going to be so much more receptive. Give them the facts. Give them the resources. Fear tactics can go so wrong because if you've told someone, if you do this thing, the world will explode. That works on someone like me because I'm a rule follower and I'm afraid of the world exploding. But for the average teen... Uh, They will test that theory, and when they see that the world did not explode, they'll think, okay, so that was a lie. Maybe everything else is a lie, too. I'm just very curious what this $500 globally to educate consumers on responsible drinking is going to be. It's like, how? what is that? What does that look like? How are you advocating for responsible drinking? Because at the end of the day, capitalism isn't interested in you individually, so I can't imagine that this $500 is supposed to impact anyone in a beneficial way other than bringing in more money to them. And I'm not even saying like, oh, fuck you, Jim Bean. Like, how dare you? 
Money is always going to be the bottom line to big companies. This isn't new. This isn't groundbreaking. This isn't revelatory. They aren't unique in that. They're functioning in the system they're in. I can't blame them for that. I want to make money too. I want my salary to keep increasing. You know, I posted something on Instagram one time that was like, one day I'm like, fuck capitalism. And the next I'm like, who wants to go shopping? And that's, you know, that's very much how I feel. There's a lot of, uh, it's confusing messages. It's confusing. Speaking of capitalism, something that I don't know how many people know this, because I myself did not learn it until I started seeking out more information about alcohol and the alcohol industry. So I don't know how common knowledge this is, but, uh, Alcohol is not regulated by the FDA. It is regulated by a different federal agency, which is called the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, aka the TTB. And this happened after Prohibition ended in 1933. And honestly, the main reason was they, you know, they separated food products and alcohol was so that they could generate tax revenue on alcohol since it was newly legalized again. It's weird when you think about the FDA and, you know, that's the Food and Drug Administration and all of these things. It's like alcohol is literally a drug because they created this in 1933. They're separate entities. So that means any sort of FDA regulations or things that get added or changed to the FDA don't apply to alcohol. Nutrition facts labels became required in 1994 for any product that was governed by the FDA, but... Alcohol doesn't fall under the FDA. The TTB did make um, labels optional in 2013 if manufacturers wanted to include them, but not required. This was kind of used by some alcohol brands to use nutrition as a means of marketing. Like think about beer companies that are like, oh, you know, we're such a low carb beer. So that way they could sort of use these nutritional labels as advertising while not actually really breaking down all of the nutritional facts because they're not legally required to list them. Now, of course, there are some rules. You know, you have to list the alcohol percentage by volume. You have to put if there are sulfates or synthetic dyes or things that people can have sensitivities to. But alcohol is not under the same shit that the FDA puts out there. And the FDA has a lot of rules and regulations that alcohol gets to kind of skirt by because it's governed by a different agency. It's It's just so telling of our society that Alcohol is literally a drug, and it is not under FDA regulation, and instead it's under a different one, and the sole purpose of that was so that they could, you know, tax and make money and and have a different, like, agency that they could create the rules for, and it's just like, sometimes it makes you want to scream, and so I scream into a microphone, into the endless void. Hello, void. How are you? I was... I was laughing because I was on the like ttb.gov, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, and I was reading their rules and their regulations and their this and their that, and they had something that was like, well, we don't conduct studies on alcohol because it doesn't, it doesn't help our cause. You know, they didn't say that, but that was the gist. But so I'm like reading all this stuff on their website, trying to gather information, and there was like an FAQ, and one of them was like, Am I allowed to make alcohol as an experiment for the science fair? That's been asked enough that you had to put that on the FAQ? And the answer was essentially, "Mm, well, no, you're not allowed to. But you can get this special permit for, you know, doing it this way. You just have to make sure you have parent supervision. It was just such a weird thing. I'm like, this gets asked enough that they have to talk about creating alcohol for science fairs? What? This is weird. 
It's just weird. That's neither here nor there. I just thought it was weird. Another thing to be aware of, uh, you know how sometimes there will be studies that show there's some sort of health benefit connected to consuming alcohol? Well, those are heavily funded by alcohol companies. A few years ago, there was actually a New York Times article that reported five alcohol companies helped fund and potentially shape the design of a 7,800-person randomized controlled trial overseen by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, a center at the NIH. This trial was supposed to answer the long questions of whether moderate drinking really reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease, and it was sort of slanted in the favor of the alcohol companies. This is not a new practice. This isn't an issue just within the alcohol industry. And again, it's much more complicated than even my simple understanding of it. I, I have a very surface level idea of all of it, but these are, you know, there are systematic problems in science funding and it's something to be aware of. We're always being marketed to, and you know what? Sometimes I'm fine with it. Sometimes Facebook ads do know what I want. And you know, everyone was so upset about TikTok. They were like, oh, we have no privacy. TikTok's listening. Well, you know what? TikTok's algorithm knows me better than I know myself, and it knows exactly what I find funny, so I'm okay with it. Go ahead. Mark it to me, baby. You know me. Somebody knows me. Again, like I said, None of these issues are only within the alcohol industry. They're not new. Again, there's so many things that it's like part of capitalistic society, yada, yada. A lot of things that I just, I'm not even qualified to talk about and I don't really understand and I don't really know. But what I do know is that um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious, Jim Bean, where those 500 mil are going towards and, and what the fuck you're going to be calling responsible drinking education anyway. I, I googled responsible drinking out of curiosity and here's, here's a fucking wild sentence that makes me feel ill. Responsible drinking means more than just limiting yourself to a certain number of drinks. It also means not getting drunk and not letting alcohol control your life or your relationships. Oh, is that what I should have done? Simply not allowed alcohol to negatively affect my life or my relationships? Oh my god, thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. If that 500 million isn't going towards better and equal access to mental health care services and youth enrichment and, I don't know, fucking schools and arts programs, then you can fuck all the way off with this trendy-sounding marketing tactic of responsible drinking campaign, okay? Okay. And again, nothing personal, Jim Bean. I'm sure you're a lovely man. <laughs> Well, I think I've ranted and raved enough because now it's time for It's something that made me happy this week It's my pink cloud of sobriety So for this week's uh, pink cloud, I wanted to give my mom a shout out because she wrote a children's book and it's available to order now, and I'm just so proud of her. My mom has been such a creative inspiration and influence in my life. She has been published in so many magazines, and she's always written essays, and she's working on a novel, and she's just, like, always been a writer and always been someone who championed me writing and doing creative projects, and I'm just so proud of her for this. And so her book is called If a Mantis Finds a Fly in the Sky. It's kind of almost like in the vein of, like, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. It's a super cute children's book. Uh, the illustrations are amazing. It's about a, a praying mantis. My family has this, like, strange praying mantis obsession. I don't quite get it, but you know what? I, I appreciate 
the journey for them. So if you have any children, you know any children, you see a child and you want to give them a book, um, definitely consider ordering my mom's book. Again, it's called If a Mantis Finds a Fly in the Sky by Victoria Lorekovich Miller. Available, I was going to say available wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know, available wherever you get your books. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, I don't know, other book places. Give it a Google. Tell her I sent you. As always, thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, Remember to rate, subscribe, leave a review, say hello, do something kind for yourself, drink more water, and we'll talk next week. Okay, bye everyone. Bye everyone.